0: Part seven of My School Days by E. Nesbit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part seven Disillusion I was sent with a servant from Pau to Bany. She soon dried my tears by reminding me of the hideous blue and white knitted cuffs, which my hot and rebellious fingers had for weeks been busy in knitting for my mother and which I should now be able to present personally. They were of a size suitable to the wrist of a man of about eight feet, and the irregularities at the edge where I had forgotten to slip the stitch were concealed by stiff little rutchings of blue-satin ribbon. I thought of them with unspeakable pride. We reached Bagnaret after dark, and my passion of joy at seeing my mother again was heightened by the knowledge that I had so rich a gift to bestow upon her. We had late dinner, in itself an event to me, and then I tasted for the first time the delicious chemin de a kind of open tart made of almond paste and oranges, covered with a crisp icing or caramel. I have never tasted this anywhere else, and though I have tried again and again to reproduce it in my own kitchen, I have never obtained even a measure of success. Even to this delicacy, the thought of those blue and white cuffs added flavour. After dinner I slipped away, and made hay of the contents of my box, till I found the precious treasures. I returned solemnly to the room where my mother was sitting by the bright wood fire, with the wax candles on a polished table. Mamma, I said, we called our mothers mamma in the sixties, I have made your present all my very own self, and it's in here." "'Whatever can it be?' said my mother, affecting an earnest interest. She undid the paper slowly. "'Oh, what beautiful cuffs! Thank you, dear. And did you make them all your very own self?' My sisters also looked at and praised the cuffs, and I went happy to bed. When I was lying between the sheets, I heard one of my sisters laughing in the next room. She was talking, and I knew she was speaking of my precious cuffs. "'They would just fit a coal-heaver,' she said. She never knew that I heard her, but it was years before I forgave that unconscious outrage to my feelings. Bagnaret de Bigorre is built in the midst of mountain-streams. Streams cross the roads, streams run between the houses under the houses, not quiet, placid little streams, such as meander through our English meadows, but violent, angry, rushing, boiling little mountain torrents that thunder along their rocky beds. Sometimes one of these streams is spanned by a dark arch, and a house built over it. What good fortune that one of these houses should have been the one selected by my mother, on quite other grounds, of course! And, oh, the double good fortune, I, even I, was to sleep in the little bedroom actually built on the arch itself that spanned the mountain stream. It was delightful, it was romantic, it was fascinating. I could fancy myself a princess in a tower by the rushing Rhine, as I heard the four foot torrent go thundering along with a noise that would not have disgraced a full grown river. It had every charm the imagination could desire, but it kept me awake till the small hours of the morning. It was humiliating to have to confess that even romance and a rushing torrent did not compensate for the loss of humdrum commonplace sleep, but I accepted that humiliation, and slept no more in the little room overhanging the torrent. The next day was, I confess, tiresome to me, and I, in consequence, tiresome to other people. The excitement of coming back to my mother had quickly worn off. My mother was busy letter-writing, so were my sisters. I missed Marguerite, Mimi, even my lessons. There was something terribly unhomelike about the polished floor, the polished wooden furniture, the marble-topped chest of drawers with glass handles and the cold greyness of the stone-built houses outside. I wandered about the suite of apartments, every now and then rubbing myself like a kitten against my mother's shoulder, and murmuring, I don't know what to do. I tried drawing, but the pencil was bad and the paper greasy. I thought of reading, but there was no book there that I cared for. It was one of the longest days I ever spent. That evening my sister said to me, "'Daisy, would you like to see a shepherdess, a real live shepherdess?' Now, I had read of shepherdesses in my Conte de Fe. I knew that they wore rose-wreathed watteau hats, short satin shirts, and flowered silk overdresses, that spinning was part of their daily toil, and that they danced in village festivals, generally at moments when the King's son was riding by to the hunt. "'Oh, I should like to see a shepherdess,' I said. "'But do you mean a real one, who keeps sheep, and spins, and everything?' "'Oh, yes, she stands at her cottage-door and spins while she watches her sheep, and eats a beautiful kind of yellow bread made of maize, that looks and tastes like cake. I dare say she would give you some if you asked her.' The mention of the shepherdess dissipated my boredom. I climbed on my sister's knee and begged for a fairy story. And let it be about shepherdesses," I said. My sister had a genius for telling fairy stories. If she would only write them now, as she told them all then, all the children in England would insist on having her fairy stories, and none others. She told me a story that had a shepherdess in it, and a king's son, of course—a wicked fairy, a dragon, and a coach, and many other interesting and delightful characters. I went to bed happy in the knowledge that the fairy world was stooping to earth, and that the fairy world and this world of ours would touch to-morrow, and touch at the point where I should behold the shepherdess. I spent the next morning happily enough in drawing fancy portraits of the shepherdess, the king's son, and the wicked fairy. My sister lent me her paint and her best sable brush, and life blossomed anew under the influence of a good night's rest. In the afternoon we started out to see the Shepherdess. Over the cobblestones stones of the streets, among the little mountain torrents, we picked our way, and came at last to green pastures at the foot of the mountains. The Pyrenees were so bright in their snow-coats touched by the sun that our eyes could not bear to look at them. "'We shall soon come to the Shepherdess,' said my sister cheerfully. You must not expect her to be like the ones in fairy tales, you know." "'Of course not,' said I, but in my heart I did." We came presently to a sloping pasture, strewn with fragments of rock. "'There she is,' said my sister, sitting on a stone spinning with her sheep round her. I looked, but could see no one save one old woman, the witch, probably. Where? I don't see her," I said. By this time we were close to the old woman. "'There's your shepherdess,' said my sister in English. "'Look at her nice quaint dress and the spindle and distaff.' I looked, but such a sight had no charms for me. Where was my flowered silk Watto-hatted maiden? Where was her crook with the pink ribbons on it? and as for the king's son, his horse could never have ridden up this steep hillside. It was a disenchanted world where I stood gazing sadly at a wrinkle-faced old woman in a blue woollen petticoat and coarse linen apron, a gay-coloured shawl crossed on her breast, a gay-coloured handkerchief knotted round her head. She had wooden shoes, and her crook was a common wooden one with a bit of iron at the end, and not a ribbon nor a flower on it but she was very kind. She took us up to her little hut among the rocks, and gave us milk and maize-bread at my sister's request. The maize-bread was like sawdust, or a bath-bun of the week before last, but had it been ambrosia I could not have tasted a second mouthful, my heart was too full. I came home in silence. My sister was sad because the little treat had not pleased me, I did not mean to be ungrateful. I was only struggling savagely with the misery of my first disillusion. Like Mrs. Overtheway, I had looked for pink roses, and found only Foyer Mort. End of Part 7